What's up, everyone? My name is McKenna Herford, and I have a PhD in counseling psychology. Why listen to this podcast, Revealing the Ivory Tower? Well, basically, I'm so sick and tired of the Ivory Tower, which is basically a metaphor for people who are fancy and have been stuck in their research laboratories for 20 years and have lost touch with reality and real people and are studying things that are not really impactful in any way. And a lot of times they're pretty biased. And truthfully, I've had my own negative experiences, including searching a medical diagnosis for a really long time. Finally got it, thank you. And my own experiences in grad school. So I'm here because people know me for my realness. And so I want to tell you the realness, my own perspectives, the biases, the research, and I'll have different guests talking about a lot of different topics. So let's dive in, tear apart this tower once and for all, and have real conversations with people that the research actually affects. Happy Wednesday, listeners. I cannot believe that it is the season two finale, and I cannot believe for sure that, number one, we made it this far, and that it's here already. So I am ending the season, but coming back pretty soon, so don't worry about it, and I'll have way more episodes lined up. I'm hoping in future seasons to have longer seasons with more episodes involved, so you guys have a lot more content, and I already have some amazing ideas in mind and guests planned for you guys. For now, it was really important for me to take a short break so I can pass this licensure exam because if you don't know, I actually do work full time and it's rough out here as a psychologist right now. Importantly though, for this episode, we took a different route in a couple ways. First, This was the first episode that I actually didn't even have the topic planned out pretty far in advance. This actually wasn't even on my radar until this guest actually posted about on Instagram. So Dr. Annie came on to this episode and talked about the kind of newer relationship between venture capital firms and the mental health field. So some examples of the companies, what exactly that means, some pros, some benefits of it, but also some ethical concerns that we have or just some concerns we have about how these companies are being run currently, not to say they can't improve in the future. And we have some suggestions. So in case, I don't know, I get lucky out there and anyone in Silicon Valley is listening, please take these into account. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. It was a lot more conversational than my typical episode. And I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I actually learned a lot because Truthfully, I don't know much about investing outside of Shark Tank. (laughs) So I really hope you guys enjoy. And we also talk a lot about ethics. And it's really important to understand the ethical piece related to mental health, specifically with psychology, because we tend to have tighter ethics than some of the other fields in mental health or any really health fields in general. 
and how that's important to consider whenever these venture capital firms are kind of partnering with us or wanting to help provide supplemental services that may not include our input whatsoever. So I will talk to you guys soon, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, so this is the first time that I didn't have this episode planned out far in advance. I saw, I think you did a reel or a post or something like that. And I thought, oh, I've seen a couple articles on this. And it's basically talking about the role of venture capital and mental health and what are some of the pros, but then the inevitable cons and costs of that. So I thought we could collaborate on this one, especially since you brought the topic up. So do you want to kind of introduce yourself before we kind of dive in here? Sure. Um, So for the listeners that haven't met me yet, my name is Annie. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. And uh, on Instagram, I go by queen behavior change, queen like royalty and behavior change, like turning over a new leaf. (laughs) I do that. My name is Annie Morrow, which is a common name. And so it's, it's nice to get to chat with you today, McKenna, because I started a little less than a year ago of, you know, podcasting and posting things on Instagram and it's been a journey. And I I think one of the things that I've enjoyed most about it is connecting with other people like you. Um, And I think we have some overlap in some of what we're trying to cover in our online content. The, what I've, focused on more so lately, which it overlaps to some extent with what you were saying. I really have tried to gear my platform. I'm, I'm on, you know, Instagram and TikTok. I have a podcast, all just queen behavior change. And I'm trying to focus my content on helping therapists have resources, things that are really useful so that they can help their clients change. So I, I used to want to be full-time in uh, working in universities, doing research. I've had, I've spent a lot of time in the research world um, and, and I like teaching. I, I, I currently teach right now. I'm teaching adjunct at the university of Miami, um, an undergraduate course. I have two trainees, one assessment uh, focused trainee and one uh, therapy focused trainee. So I'm, I'm really into education and um, I, I love it. And also, I think it's really cool that with technology, I can reach a wider audience. So that's kind of, that's a little on me. For sure. Yeah. And just so everyone knows, she has the most hilarious videos on her Instagram. It's so funny. Uh, I'm trying. I, I think it, what it, it's interesting because if you just clicked on a random video of me, you know, doing the robot and dancing on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, you might not realize like, wow, Andy's mission is to help therapists and to educate therapists. But what I realized is that when I started, you know, last October, it it was like, I can, you know, the last podcast episode, I found like a national expert in suicidality. And I interviewed them during Suicide Prevention Awareness Month um, about how to help suicidal people, because I know that that's an area of our training that many people feel is lacking. And And also that's just so heavy. And sometimes therapists, like, I mean, myself included, my entire feed on one of my accounts is just, it's all French bulldogs. It's just all Frenchies. (laughs) So we love, we love a video of something silly of, 
scrolling Zillow and looking at $25 million mansions. We love, uh, you know, all these different things. And so I think that when I, you know, introduce myself to therapists, you know, the content that is most likely to get a more viral resonate in that way, get a more viral sort of hit is the dancing video. So I, I try to be funny um, because I know how much therapists are going through right now. And maybe they want to check out the podcast on helping suicidal people at some point, but I don't, I mean, I think if I have it all educational, all sort of serious stuff, it doesn't really address sort of where are therapists at right now. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and I think too, a lot of the newer social media platforms from my understanding are more geared toward humor anyway. So it's a nice way to to meet people. I mean, that's how we kind of got introduced with yeah. through Instagram. So yeah. I think it's such a cool piece and mental health has been such a huge topic, especially since COVID really hit. And so there's this really rough, uh, combination of there's a higher need for therapy now, and there aren't enough therapists across the board to provide. Which is why I think therapist education is so important. We need to train more therapists. (laughs) That's why our soapboxes overlap. (laughs) Yes. And anecdotally, I've seen a lot of therapists saying I'm getting the F out of this field right now, like retiring early or just leaving the field totally because there there's a lot of talk about physicians, of course, and nurses, which I think is totally fair. And we've been carrying a brunt of the weight as far as people, just the heaviness. And so it's too much for a lot of therapists. And so I think the goal, bring it back to our topic of venture capital is they realized these venture capital firms, oh, there's a hu- huge need here. And it's not being addressed by insurance, despite the fact that technically it's supposed to be, but the coverage is garbage. And so here's a way for us to address a need and also potentially a way for us to make just a shit ton of profit. So maybe we can kind of talk about some examples, I guess, of some of the kind of venture capital companies that have come from that, a lot of digital ones for sure. Yeah. And I, I know that you were saying there's all different kinds of people that listen to the podcast. And so I think what might be helpful for some of the listeners that are tuning in is to consider that there are different kinds of investors yeah. that give companies money. And I, if anyone is listening to this thinking Annie knows about finance, I want to just circle back to the beginning of the interview. Annie is a psychologist that knows almost nothing about finance. She just likes to Google stuff and listen to podcasts. This is no one take anything that I'm saying as well vetted. This is a promise that you need to go do more research on anything that I say. My understanding back to that is that, um, there are investors, things like uh, private equity, and then there's also, you know, venture capital. And so my understanding is that, you know, private equity tends to be investors that work with more mature companies, not necessarily a startup right at the beginning, maybe the, but I, that it could be, I could be getting that wrong, but there's, I think in particular with venture capital, a focus on investors giving growing companies and sometimes riskier investments, because you don't know if they're all going to pan out, giving these new companies money in hopes, particularly that these growing companies will then either 
you know, possibly become a unicorn and then get an IPO, an initial public offering, or also be acquired by a larger company. So like an example in the education technology space is that Clever, and so many people, if they either work in the schools or if they have a kid that goes to school, Clever is a company that makes portals. So like if you log in and you see your kid's grades, Clever is a company that makes that. And uh, so Clever was once a startup and, and they received venture capital funding. And relatively recently, Clever was bought by Kahoot. That's that like quiz game that people use. Mm. Um, and and I guess some other stuff in their sort of company. Uh, but Clever was bought by Kahoot for $500 million. So, I mean, there that's just one example more in the education space that I just had at the top of my mind. But these are investors that are taking money and they are giving it to small or growing companies um, that are headed hopefully towards either an initial public offering. That means that they get big enough that they can be publicly traded companies and any person, you know, like any random individual could buy a stock, like the stocks that we know of, like Apple or Microsoft. So there's that path or hopefully to be acquired. And so I think just beginning with the end in mind on this whole conversation, understanding what is the purpose of a venture capital, you know, you know, organization, what are they trying to do? They primarily, their goal, they have a fiduciary duty in my understanding to their investors, which is their investors give them money with, you know, with the intention that they are investing something and that they will either get that money back or that they're taking a risk. And that the hope is that maybe if they have several different types of investments, maybe one of them will pan out and then they will get money back. But it is an investment. It is not a charity. It is not a not-for-profit. It is not a part of the government. It is an investment. Yeah. I I was just watching Shark Tank. <laughs> yes. Similar, similar idea, except that my understanding of Shark Tank is they take a cr- absolutely just crazy wild yeah. percentage of the company. And that in, you know, traditional sort of venture capital spaces, like you would, they would laugh it, a company would laugh if someone said, oh, I'm going to take 33% of your company. So it's, a, I don't think Shark Tank is a good deal for those companies, but that's just. Me. Yeah. And it's kind of a similar concept. It, like they've said on there, this is not the charity tank, right? So the goal yeah. is I want to make a profit. I need to yeah. make a return and not just my money back, but also obviously profit on top of that. Cause it's a business at the end of the day. Like that's the whole idea. So I think that was a really good idea to kind of start with that. Okay. So people yeah. were entering this conversation. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Also, you yeah. sounded so smart about the finance piece. I was like, okay. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad you think it sounds smart because I know there's someone that will listen to this and be like, oh, she is so wrong. Private equity takes flyers, takes risks on, sorry, I don't know what they're going to say, but so, a true <laughs> finance person would be like, Annie does not know anything about alternative investments. I don't know what they would say, but some of my friends, um, you know, have, have, uh, gotten tons of training and in, in finance stuff. And I, I think it's really interesting that I'm, I'm totally uninformed relative to them, but I, I do think relative to some people that are kind of asleep at the wheel, I understand broadly that we should be vigilant to what is going on. 
And I, I can't articulate the exact like, you know, structure of some of these things, but I'm, sure. I follow it very closely. And I, I followed this stuff for a really long time uh, because yeah. I'm like, Hey, why, why do they think that they're going to profit from this? My understanding is that patients in general, they need care and that's expensive. The, the therapists, they need to be paid money as well. And they need, because of their student loans, because of the quality of their work, it's not cheap to pay them. It's not like hiring uh, someone who's going to, you know, work on Uber Eats, riding a bicycle. It's not a different type of labor. It's skilled labor. So it's not something that traditionally has very high margins. So why do they suddenly think, oh, this is going to be a big moneymaker? I mean, I'm confused about that. I mean, unless if, well, but I guess we'll get into that as we go. But I, that's, I think my big, I'm very protective of our field. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we go into this field knowing we're not going to make money. I remember that's the first up. thing. That's the <laughs> first thing. Annie, why are you going to major in psychology? That's a, that's the lowest paid major. Yeah. That's a, that's, I remember someone that I love very much said to me, a blood relative. Yeah. Why are you going to pick that? That's the lowest paid major. Yeah. You should be going into medical school. And it's like, okay. Uh, so I heard that growing up and I'm like, from medical doctors, they're like, oh, I was really into psych, but you don't make any money. And I'm like, well, that's pretentious. And now that I'm in the field and there are these lines, I'm like, oh, okay. I get it on a more real level, but yeah, it's very much, I mean, a helping field and these fields are just not as valued profit wise. Um, so yeah, it's, there's a concern. And then the, the ethical piece, um, and our ethics in a lot of ways are stricter than pretty much any other field, like medicine, um, social work in some ways we, we have much stricter ethics. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the the ethics and, you know, I, I think there are some very ethical people across all the different fields. And so I think that there's, and, and I think that, um, in medicine, it's, it's clear of do no harm. I think there are certain things that are, are great across certain, um, different professions, Um, but, but I think that, uh, the training that we receive in ethics, not just coursework, but supervised hours and, and really working with patients and getting feedback on our work along the way is a very long road to, to get your license to practice psychology. And I mean, as we all know, and, um, that's very different than someone that is investing. They have they might have training in investments, which I need desperately need training in investments, but <laughs> they don't necessarily have training in like managing risk and safety specifically for clinical care, you know, and things like that. Yeah. Maybe we can start with some of the pros, like some of the benefits, because if there weren't any yeah. benefits, they wouldn't be, they would, they wouldn't have made it right. Like this far. Um, so and I don't think I would be as interested in it if I think that's one of the things that a lot of people see me complaining or see me talking about this and think, oh, Annie is just anti. I'm actually not. I've followed this space for a very long time because I think there are tons of benefits. I yeah. mean, I think there's they don't stand alone without risks, but but there yeah. are many upsides. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to kind of cover is the complexity. I mean, that's a huge piece of this podcast, I think is trying to, (laughs) trying to like break down these very complex 
subjects. And so this is one. And so like just one example for people is calm. So that app where you can do like meditation and for my understanding, it's blown up to a lot of other things that they provide now. And I think you get like a free trial or something. And so then you have to pay for it monthly. And so there, there is an interest in essentially apps because number one apps are blowing up anyway, but also easier access. You don't necessarily have, you can do it on your own time. So Calm, I believe, reached a billion dollar valuation or something this year. So obvious, and a lot of people use Calm. A lot of people listening to this probably use Calm and have experienced some benefits. And I know that you and I talked about like talk space, better help. So I don't know if you want to kind of talk about maybe some of the benefits, I guess, from a consumer or client patient standpoint from those. Well, even before I go to um, the some of that stuff that we had talked about, I think broadly, not any one particular company, the benefits that I see and why I've been excited about this space for a long time is that number one, I believe that uh, automation has benefits. So anytime people are doing repetitive tasks, if it is possible to automate them, that frees up humans to do something else. So if there's a factory where people are, I don't know, making t-shirts or something like that, and there's an element where there's a robot that can sew something that used to be a human being sewing, that's great. You can automate that task. And then that person could, you know, spend less time on sewing and go create art or spend time with their family or do whatever. So I think that automation is an interesting idea and has the potential to help human beings. Uh, what are the things, and, and these are, I'm not saying any of the risks. There's a lot of risks. People yeah, are listening we'll to like, any, what about the risks? Um, so things that I think are positive about automation as it relates to, to mental health care. I think that there are a lot of, um, a lot of tasks that are repetitive uh, from documentation, you know, like writing things down or, you know, even just things like simplifying something like as I'm speaking out loud, the technology to translate my words, my spoken words into text and r- document that and write it out so that I could use instead of what they used to do back in the day is you would send a recording and then a person would type up the the words by hand, now there's speech to text translation. And that is here because of AI, because of artificial intelligence. So I think that that's an example of a feature, a very simple feature where I think there would be ways to incorporate that into healthcare that could reduce the number of minutes that a a psychologist is sitting there typing things into a report. It takes so so much time too. It takes takes so much time. (laughs) And, And we're in this because we love to be with people, a lot of us, and we really feel alive and and excited and fulfilled when we're helping people. So I think that there, there are great hopes to be able to automate that, uh, you know, elements of that. There's obviously huge risks. I think an example of a company that does this very well is listen, L Y S S N. And they are a company, to my knowledge, that uh, helps people get automated feedback on motivational interviewing therapy. So I uh, have done projects where, and I work with students where I might um, sit next to a trainee and make marks and make like tally marks on an Excel sheet or on a piece of paper about their fidelity to motivational interviewing the therapeutic intervention. 
there is a company, Listen, that has an artificial intelligence version of that sort of clinical supervision. And so there's solely artificial intelligence, the robot all by itself. And then there's also human in the loop versions of machine learning or artificial intelligence, which Listen is. So this would, you know, basically give a trainee and a supervisor an annotated script with and I could be, if someone from listening is hearing me talking about their company, they can explain it better than me. Sorry, guys. Um, but, you know, it, it would give someone like a script with little bubbles and it could give them scores. And then the supervisor and the trainee could review it together and it would reduce the number of minutes that the that the trainee and the therapist would have to do to get to, to, get to that quality of feedback. So that's like, to me, an example of what could be a really cool benefit of this, of just think about anything. It doesn't have to be mental health. Think about anything that is repetitive. If there's a repetitive task, there is a chance, not an hundred percent promise, but there is a chance that artificial intelligence could automate a component of that task and it could benefit humanity in my opinion. Yeah. So essentially making it more efficient. I didn't know about listen. So it sounds like well, because just so everyone knows, whenever you go through training and you're trying to learn therapies, a lot of them require intensive kind of supervision. So you're sitting down with a supervisor who is trained in this. And so you're learning from them. And so there are specific techniques from that therapy that you might use. And so you want to make sure that you touch on these different techniques of the therapy. And so it sounds like from what you're saying, this company could help save time between a supervisor and then a trainee who's trying to learn the therapy and, and, and save time because the supervisor doesn't then have to go through like, okay, every single line in this transcription or like watching the video back or whatever the case is, it saves time because they can kind of have like a, a cue to look for these different techniques. Am I getting that right? Exactly. So imagine that there was a trainee that had an hour long session with their, um, with their patient or their client, there could be a recording of that. Then with artificial intelligence, they would uh, analyze that and give some scores across different things and flag certain elements and then together, the, the trainee and the supervisor could sit down and look at a specific section of the recording and go over it together. So, I mean, you know, a lot of sports teams use this sort of same process where they review game tape. Um, you know, there's a football player that's learning new plays and then they review the, the game tape together. And so that is one example I am, I know people are listening to this being like, Annie, this could go wrong. This could go wrong. And for the people that are listening, I'm like, yes, I hear you. I think another sort of very easy to imagine um, benefit for therapists out there is also for people that do parent-child interaction therapy. Mm. Typically, there is a homework assigned, a, an assignment for, as you guys know, many of you know, for the parent to do five minutes of uh, attending, positive attending, five minutes of some people call it special time I sometimes call it quality time where the parent interacts with their child in a way to encourage and listen um, and support, you know, their child's socio-emotional development. So that five minute time as of right now, typically that's just lost data. Did you do it? Yes or no. 
oh, let's talk about it. And the parent goes over it. There could be an app. And there's an article um, that I read of a very, very rough prototype where I think some people out of Harvard Medical School made that prototype. Um, I can send you the links for any of the things that I'm talking about, by the way. And so, you know, hey, it's like a little app and it was like special time app and it would sort of listen to that session. And in a sort of similar fashion, use speech to text translation and then provide sort of feedback that is similar to what I'm not, I'm overselling it. I'm not talking about the risks, but it is the same idea or the same premise as when that parent is working in session uh, with their therapist. Typically the therapist, it's kind of quote unquote, a bug in the ear model for people that are listening to the show. I'm kind of putting my finger up to my ear, like a little walkie talkie symbol, but the therapist observes the parent and the child interacting and provides feedback. It is similar to a supervisor that provides feedback to their trainee. And it it is repetitive because the the protocol stays the same for motivational interviewing or for parent-child interaction training. There are elements that people are looking for each time um, and people are sort of observing and then saying, oh, like that was a great reflection or, oh, okay, when you said this, you know, da, 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 da. So people are giving feedback in a repetitive way about some of the same concepts. I mean, it makes sense how there could be some of these services that could save a ton of time because I mean, yeah, I'm a full-time practicing clinician and I, I need all the time that I can get. I have, I'm required to do a lot of direct client care. And so with documentation, it takes a while. So like, I could see how these could be helpful. So saving time in general sounds like a huge benefit. And also I think stepped care, like if you think about that parent child interaction and by stepped care, I mean, different tiers of care for the people that are listening. So you think about that parent child interaction therapy, obviously, yes, working one-on-one with a licensed clinician would be ideal. If there's a person that is unable to access a licensed clinician, if there was a good, um, artificially intelligent, uh, you know, program that could give parents feedback and they could use it and benefit from it, it it wouldn't be the same level of care as working directly with a provider, but it would get at some of those same concepts possibly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. So yeah, stepped care is basically referring to these different like levels of intensity or involvement. And so if we take the app piece out of it, what that would look like now is you have like one consultation with a provider. And for some people that's good. Like they're they're just, they kind of need someone to bounce ideas off of, or it's kind of mild. So like one, one session or consultation is fine. Then we keep moving up. And then the most extreme um, end of that spectrum or like the highest level of care would be if like long-term hospitalization, basically. So looking at that. So yeah, I could see how, especially for people that, have kind of milder, um, concerns or like maybe they're not even prevention. Yeah. Yeah. Even just prevention of like, Hey, you don't need to have any problems at all. If you're looking to up your parent game, uh, Hey, what about, um, getting some feedback on, uh, the way that you are interacting and supporting your kids growth. Yeah. And it could be take it or leave it. Hey, this is just some feedback for you. Like, and it's, so I think there's huge, broad, positives that are, are possible. Yeah. Possible. Possible. Yes. And 
So time obviously is a big one. Also cost. It seems like some of these services, like obviously Calm, the example I gave, that would be, I mean, yes, you do have to pay for an app and we'll get into the the overall cost still being an issue later, but it's Mm -hmm. still cheaper than you going to see a therapist to like kind of help you to walk you through that. And then I don't know if you want to talk about better help and like talk space in those, those places, but it's generally cheaper than going to to see someone like private practice who doesn't take insurance, for example. Totally. Yes. So I think that these apps, what the, a positive of them is that included in their mission is that they are trying to increase access to care. Yeah. So not even just taking, taking cost totally out of the equation, um, just for people that, previously didn't have access to a remote session. Um, there are, and you were saying you're from Mississippi, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so, so when I worked in Mississippi, I worked in Jackson um, and many of my patients would drive from different corners of the state. So if I had six visits at one of the clinics, I might have someone from the, like the Gulf coast, like the Gulf where you, where you said you're from yeah. somebody from more or less kind of almost closer to Memphis. There's, yeah. there's a corner of, of Mississippi that is closer to Memphis than it is to Jackson, the capital of Mississippi. Yeah. However, many people don't realize that if you are a Mississippi resident and you have uh, insurance through the state of Mississippi, you might not be able to be reimbursed even if Memphis is 20 minutes away. So yeah. you have to drive down to Jackson, Mississippi, um, sometimes for the, those patients in order to receive care. Sometimes there would be people where there was not a single psychologist in their county. Um, when I was in Mississippi, I was the only uh, person there that I knew of uh, that was a psychology provider. I, w- I was pre-licensed, so I was an intern there, pre-doctoral intern. Um, but some of the services I provided, I was, to my knowledge, the only person there that could do that, that spoke Spanish. And my Spanish isn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but if I'm your only option, yeah, like in the entire state, you know, I know that, um, wow, you've got to drive really far to see me. When I was working there at the hospital, I currently in that, or at that time, I did not offer remote visits. So those, the people that I was working with, where I was literally probably the only person that could talk to them and, and Spanish and, and help out with that, they, they had to drive to see me. So at a fundamental level, I see that BetterHelp is there and Talkspace, they are working on that. They are trying to, and now I think with the pandemic, I think there's been a bigger focus yeah. on having more telehealth separate from those companies, but they were doing that before it was cool, before mm-hmm. everybody was doing telehealth, they were trying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are some obviously big systemic issues. And I just, as a side note, you know, being from Mississippi, yeah. I just want to say a big F you to the legislators there who continually <laughs> underfund. <laughs> this is my soapbox for the episode. Um, underfund. Um, and actually, I think they've been sued, if I'm not mistaken, for not oh, even I'm providing sure. the minimum required mental health in a state that probably needs it more than any other state in the country, arguably. And there aren't any mental health providers that pay as garbage because there's no funding. And so people aren't getting the help. And so then it just leads to a cascade 
of issues. And so then that leads to what you were saying of essentially people probably had to drive like one to two hours at least to come see you. So I'm just going to say, fuck you to the <laughs> right here. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I hear you. I feel your pain. From my understanding, I mean, a good chunk of people in the U.S. don't live in super urban areas. So there is a lot of that need. And like you said, the pandemic, actually, one of the only benefits of the pandemic is it's forced people to acknowledge because there have been studies before this showing that telehealth is pretty like pretty much the same as far as outcomes go for a lot of therapies. But there was still kind of this bias and hesitancy. But yeah, I mean, Better Health and Talk Space were doing that before now. And they've been kind of addressing that and, and also cost. I think that they, they have an understanding of that. There are problems with the the healthcare market. And so because of the problems that exist without taking sides as to why, or I I understand if I could solve the problem or I understood why, like I would be a gajillionaire. Obviously I don't know how to solve it, but there's a problem, which is that, health insurance companies are not willing to pay mental health providers what the market is willing to pay. Mm-hmm. So what happens is as a mental health care provider, I worked in the schools. I worked when I was in Mississippi, I, we were working with patients that had Medicaid. We I've been in settings where people had health insurance. I've been in settings where uh, settings where I worked in the public schools. And I did that for more than a decade in all the different places that I was working throughout the years. I think, I, I don't know, I could double check the timing on that, but I was for a long time working in all different kinds of settings. And now I am working in private practice. And at this time, I'm not taking insurance. And and the reasons for that are super complicated. It's not easy on a lot of um, healthcare professionals to try to figure this out. It's, no. it's, I'm not saying that it will always be that way, but there are problems. I mean, just imagining totally separate from even my case, but just imagine, because I don't own the practice where I am. I, I work in a group practice and I'm a contractor, gotcha. but I'm Im- imagining I had to own that practice and I had to pay the rent of our offices and pay the administrative staff. And I had to worry about keep paying the light bill, keeping everything on. And then also knowing that, okay, the insurance is going to pay so little number of dollars per hour. The only way that you're going to be able to do that is if you see tons of patients. Yeah. So that's it. Let's like if they pay little per hour, then you need to see many patients throughout the day in order to not even earn tons of money, but just to be operational. So that's a very tough decision. I've been working in private practice for um, over a year now, but but it's not easy. And BetterHelp, they understood or Talkspace, they understood that there are problems with that so that there are people that cannot afford to work with therapists that don't accept insurance, but then also do want to, to get mental health services. And so I think BetterHelp and Talkspace are trying to go after that client, someone that maybe cannot afford the full rate without insurance, but also has some money um, and is willing to, I don't know if that makes sense to, to yeah. invest in mental health services. Yeah. Um, just to give my listeners kind of an idea. So obviously there's a cost issue for the client or consumer. So when you're looking for a therapist, 
it's hard to afford that on your end because the insurance may not cover a whole lot or your copay is incredibly high or you only get like a few sessions or whatever the case is. We also get screwed on our end because we don't make that much. Like we're, you know, we bill through the insurance. So in those cases, so if you come in with your insurance, for example, we file with them, they're supposed to cover it. But the problem is they barely, they barely cover shit. Like we don't get that reimbursement rate that like a physician does. And so I've had plenty of friends that work in private practice that have said, of course, like if I could afford to just do insurance, because that's the only way to make it more affordable, but still not great for people, then I would do that. But because of our loans, because of the rent, like you said, people can like providers can't like we'd be homeless, we'd lose our job. And so it's a system that it's not benefiting anyone except the insurance companies. And so these venture capital firms have figured that out that like, it's kind There's of- There's a little gap life. here. There's like yeah. a little gap here between people that can afford a private pay therapist and people that can't afford anything at all. Yeah. And so, hey, there's a little gap there. Well, let's try to to work with that. Um, and, and I understand what they're trying to do. And, and also I think for, um, other young therapists that are listening to this and being like, wow, Annie, like you did this for so long. You were working in public schools. I conducted my dissertation in a title one school, my entire program of research when I was trying to become a tenure track professor. And I was going down that lane was really all about improving the quality and access to mental health care. Um, I was not born knowing Spanish. I worked so hard to learn Spanish so that I can increase access to mental health care for people that um, are monolingual Spanish speakers. You know, I, I worked at this so much. I love it so much. And I would say for those therapists that are listening to me, there are different chapters in our lives. And the chapter that I'm in right now does not negate or cancel the many, many years, the many, many reports, the many, many therapy visits, the many, many research studies, the many, many whatever that I did in my 20s um, and in, in the beginning of my 30s when I was working with clients that that did um, use insurance or that were uh, in the public school setting. That was like a research funded um, thing that where I was working with some of those uh, families. But I was working with families from all different walks of life throughout those years. And I loved it so much. And I'm so grateful for that chapter. I'm not in that chapter right now. It doesn't mean that I can't write a new chapter where I go back to it. Yeah. You know, so that's what I would say to the therapists that are listening to this. Cause I know that um, that's one of the questions that therapists will ask me. They'll say, Annie, like, how could you leave? And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm still training therapists. So my I have two trainees that work for me and they have sliding scale. You know, I see one reduced fee client. I am teaching, which is a reduced fee activity. The the university does not pay me my full rate for the hour of my time. I'm, I'm, you know, I have my 42 students. So yeah, I try to have a blend right now in the chapter that I'm in, but I I think that this is a struggle for a lot of uh, therapists. Yeah. Um, I haven't met a single therapist that hasn't gone through that of going back and forth, knowing that it's a really difficult decision, because if you charge people the full rate, a lot of people can't afford that. But if you have your own business that also may afford you the opportunity to charge the full rate, and then you can maybe afford to charge sliding scale or even 
maybe freer pro bono services. So it's never, or, or to have a mix, like I think, yeah. or to have a mix, like, you know, I, you know, I, ha- I try to have balance and I, I'm always trying to shoot for alignment and balance. And, and also knowing that I, I think that there, I, th- I really like that thing of having different chapters. There's just yeah. different chapters and, and having that openness of the chapter that I'm in right now is what I need right now to, to have alignment for myself, you know? part of the problem on my end was that I I did apply right before I took the role that I'm currently in, in a private practice um, with private pay, where I'm a private pay psychologist. I had applied to, to several jobs where I would have been able to work with people from all, all walks of life where I was going to be working at universities. And I did not get either of those jobs. And I moved from Buffalo, New York to Massachusetts, from Massachusetts to to Washington, DC, from Washington to Miami, from Miami to Mississippi, from Mississippi back to South Florida. I commuted every day to Fort Lauderdale. And at that point in time, when I applied, I applied again to more jobs to keep chasing this. I didn't get those jobs. And I also got an opportunity to work at this amazing, really nice place where I work now. And I was like, I'm going to take that opportunity. I haven't lived... I haven't lived in the same area as my blood relatives for a long time. I want to, I want to be near family. Family is one of my core values. So I, I think that making values aligned choices is really important. If we can't do that as psychologists, as therapists, it's a disservice to our clients. Yeah. And I've actually, you know, speaking of values, some people that I know intentionally do the private pay where they don't do insurance as sort of a, um, a protest to insurance. Like it's an intentional decision that I am not going to collaborate at all with insurance because if I'm engaged in this system, that's reinforcing this really broken system. So it's also a difficult decision that therapists. have. I'm not that extreme in my, (laughs) my thinking. I'm more just, uh, you know, I, yeah, it's complicated, but, but oh. I think as we're covering all this ground of the people that are listening that are like, wait, I thought that this was the venture capital episode. I actually think that this is really the foundation to our conversation about venture capital, which is that, Hey, if it's this hard, even with insurance, even with this, even with that, why, why do these people on Sand Hill road, why do they think that this is going to be a big moneymaker? Because we're sitting here saying, I don't see how it could be. So yeah. what are they doing? What is their goal? And I, what it keeps coming back to for me, my understanding of what they're trying to do, and I could be wrong, I am guessing, but my understanding is that they are trying to become Walmart. And if Walmart goes into a town and they offer bread and milk and eggs at a low enough price for a long enough time the corner market shuts down. And so if these large companies do that and they cause closures of the other places that offer mental health services, over time, they will have a greater share of the market and then maybe they'll be able to to raise prices. To my knowledge, none of them are currently making a lot of money. In fact, it is my understanding that many of these companies are operating at a loss. They are losing money. And I guess it's time to maybe transition into (laughs) some of the concerns. I think maybe the, the first one is that there isn't 
And in their defense, it's because, you know, it's still new. There isn't a, you've said potentially a lot, which is important as far as the benefits go, because there, there hasn't been really any studies. David Seymour in the Chicago area has some really great uh, randomized data in this. I can oh, does he? Some of the links. Yeah. So there are researchers that study this. I think he's in at Northwestern. I think that Northwestern has a, a, a study center on this. Listen has some university partners that don't appear to be, I could be wrong. I don't know. I did not investigate the conflicts of yeah. interest, but listen, L-Y-S-S-N, they appear to have university partnerships where their research is, has been published. And I mean, I thought of what I've read of theirs, it was high quality. Um, I think that in the Seattle area, that center for, I forget what it's called at Northwestern implementation, something, something at Northwestern, there are growing centers that are looking at this. I, I do yeah. think that there's growing research on this. To your point about Talkspace and BetterHelp, there, there are components of what they're offering where there's absolutely no data. Yeah. And from everything that I've ever learned from the first minute I've ever stepped inside of a psychology class, there are elements of what they're doing that goes against everything I've ever learned. And so yeah. I would like to say in particular, there are some companies out there without naming the specific ones, because I really haven't looked at this, but from what I've heard, there are companies out there that um, encourage providers to be available 24 seven or, or close to it, or a, a huge amount of availability oh, to their clients. Not helpful. And then to respond via direct message, to be a text message yes, to so their bad. clients in a way I, I I've heard that people are paid for the amount of of words that they exchange. I, and again, none of this has been fact-checked. So for the people that are listening to this, I, I there this could have changed. This could not be true. These are things that I've read offhand, but I've just seen that there's a lot of stuff kind of in this category of really taking, like you said, what has been tried and true, which has been tested, which is meetings in an office or meetings via telehealth, and that's it with a therapist with with very um, clear boundaries and goals and then blurring that. And yeah. I think that really just, it makes the skin, you know, makes the hair on the back of our, our neck stand up. And it really just makes our skin crawl as yeah. um, licensed clinicians, because boundaries are so important. If, if we cannot model and, 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 show and emulate good boundaries ourselves in the therapeutic relationship, how on earth are our clients supposed to, how are they supposed to get better? Yeah. I want to give a couple examples, uh, like real life examples too, um, to kind of attest to what you're saying. So one of my good friends, I think we were in our, we were both doing our master's degree in different like fields and programs. And so of course, like you said, you're not you're not really paid well as a trainee. I think maybe she had just graduated. And so her insurance was garbage and she was also working in Mississippi. So of course, like we already talked about. So I think she went through one of the, I think it was maybe better help. And it was the text-based one where, like you said, it's essentially you're texting or sort of like emailing your therapist. And that's like the whole relationship. I, this was a while ago. So maybe they phase that out. I don't know, but I have a client, like a current client of mine that says that she has worked with a company. She did a text-based relationship with a therapist at one of these companies and she benefited from it. 
I've also heard truly horror stories. Yeah. Um, I've heard some really horror, horror stories in this realm, but I, I have heard of people that have done that and said, this is the, and they, she articulated it very clearly. And I thought that she benefited and, and she said she benefited and it was seemed entirely plausible to me. So I think there happens. Yeah. There's like a subset. I think of people that again, are not being screened or targeted at all by the, that could benefit. Like if I'm able to propel myself really well, like I have the resources to do that. Like I think text-based stuff could do really well, but to your credit, the boundary piece. So there's a reason that I do not contact my clients in between sessions One, I don't have time, but also the goal is I, we don't want to create dependence on the therapist. Um, that's also side note, a concern I have with some of the younger therapists that do traditional therapy, they'll like text their clients in between sessions and private practice. And I'm like, no, 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 no. There's a reason that like not I mean, my I'm trainees, saying, not my trainees. We don't do, good. we have, we offer for in select cases, like, I don't know how familiar you are with like the DBT model. Oh yeah. You yeah, might yeah. offer within, okay. if somebody calls within business hours and it's not an emergency, we might get back to you within 24 or 48 yeah. hours and have a five minute coaching call in certain cases sense. when we plan that in advance and it's in the context of anyway, but yeah, it is not um, thoughtless texting. Uh, but yes, I have huge concerns, like you're saying with boundaries, with depending on a therapist, um, also just with planning and making it clear from the beginning, what are the goals of this relationship? What are the goals of this process? Um, what are the goals of this, you know, educational information? How is this going to help you improve, you, you know, your life, get better clarity or alignment, you know, with your values, blah, 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 that what therapy is. If it's not clear from the beginning, I think it can really hurt that process. Oh, oh, just a lot. Yeah. And there's something to be said about, so if I'm texting, I can't, like that kind of takes away the ability to process something really important in the moment. Because as the therapist, I can't feed off that really quickly and pick up what they're saying and really kind of sit in that for a second and keep adding to that. Um, and also the boundary piece too, of like, how often are we texting? Like what, what is this? It's just a lot. Yeah. Like you said, the hair on the back of my neck stands up, but I do, like you said, I do think I'm sure there are a subset of people that could do really well. I mean, I, I just think of it when it is the sort of traditional model of like a 50 minute session once a week. And many therapies follow that model. There's 168. This is what I tell all my patients. It's like, I'm a record, a broken record. There's 168 hours in the week. Yeah. This one hour that we spend together is to consult on your other 167 hours. We're doing a one hour consultation on the rest of your life. And I think having that boundary between us consulting about it and you going out and living your life really helps so that, you know, especially you think about trauma or things like that. When you sit down and you open up the conversation to distressing topics, it is not productive to keep that open throughout your entire 168 hours in the week. It could be distracting. It could be um, a, a tax on your nervous system and on your heart and on your muscle tension to be constantly having your mind and your thoughts open to distressing topics. Yeah. There, there's a really thoughtful process and art that goes into facing your fears that goes into um, considering difficulties and adversities in your past and 
I do not um, sort of barge in without thinking about it and then stomp around. I am very mindful in the therapeutic process to um, ask permission to make sure now's a good time. What if someone is texting with their therapist and then they go sit down and take an exam? What if they're texting with their therapist about something really distracting and then they get in their car and they drive on the highway? What if these really stressful topics are kind of peppered throughout your week and it's raising your heart rate and you have a zillion medical conditions and that's not good for your medical conditions? You know, so I'm very careful and I am very, when I'm working with my patients, I, I care about them so much. I love them so much. And I, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this model of care. I'm hoping this piece changed. Um, another concern is this was like in 2016, I think. So I'm hoping it's changed to the, the screening. So I wanted to test out what would happen specifically with better health to see what would happen in these screening questions that they asked. So I intentionally, which wasn't true. I intentionally said that I was suicidal, that I was having suicidal thoughts. I was going through all these things clearly indicating, and of course I was like falsifying this because I wanted to test and see what would happen. I was basically trying to make it look like I had really severe acute stuff going on that probably needed to be addressed really quickly. And there weren't any subset of questions about the suicidal I, like thoughts that I reported that I had. Um, and so I'm hoping that that's changed, but even if it has, it's really hard to, again, that step care model that we're, we're not delivering about. pizzas. I mean, it, 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 exactly. it's like, this is not Uber eats. I am not here to drop off your sushi on a bicycle. And if there's less screening and less thought that goes into that model of care of there's a person that wants to buy a pizza. There's a person that sells pizza. There's a person that wants to deliver pizza. We've got an app to link everybody up. Okay. I've, I've got it. I that's I'm down. I get it. These apps are linking up licensed professionals I hope, I hope licensed professionals, but I doubt it, to be honest, on some of them, not all of them. But anyway, I hope licensed professionals with people that are seeking health care, mental health care. And that is not a deliver pizzas model. Um, you know, I've heard when people talk about disruptive innovation, I've heard people say the phrase in the Silicon Valley, move fast and break things. If the Silicon Valley moves fast and breaks things, and that's the hearts or the minds of the people that I have devoted my life to helping, oh, I mean, the the rage that that I will have. I mean, I will I will never forgive companies that that hurt people. I I mean, I will find a way to find peace of it and process it, but I will never forgive those companies. And there's a difference. Well, I, I guess I will say I I might I don't know process it, but I. I I, I will never forget, I guess is maybe a better way of putting it. I, I think it's really important. I'm really afraid that that is happening right now and it's not yeah. being properly reported um, in the media for a number of reasons. I, I think it's it's dangerous what you've said, that you filled out the form that way and that the com- that the company did not have a good funnel or process to deal with that concern. Like what you were saying in the beginning of the episode about there's different levels of care. There's prevention. There's meet once a week with a therapist. This is, I'm saying for the people that are not in our field, just reviewing, like there's meet once a week with a therapist. There's intensive outpatient programs where you get a lot of care, but you sleep at your house. And then there are 
uh, inpatient or residential placements where you are at a facility or a hospital and you sleep there. So there's different levels of care. And I think about what level of care is appropriate for my patients, for my clients, every single time that I see them. Or I, I lay eyes on them. I might ask more questions of, that help me make that decision on the first meeting with them and then just sort of monitor it. But it is a thought that crosses my head every single day with every single client that I see. Is this the right level of care? So if these companies are not, they're run by people that aren't licensed professionals that don't understand that that is a part of what we do. Oh, the ethics of that are just really scary to me. Yeah. I mean, certainly, obviously a potential provider reached out to me, but again, it's like, there wasn't even a subset of questions to even assess the level of risk at that time. Again, even if they've fixed that now, how do you just through these questionnaires, but then you have to wait to get matched with someone like what happens in that time? If someone is in a lot of distress, which is happening, there's already data from, you know, yeah. since COVID started that people are in a lot more people who've never had mental health problems are having mental health problems. And then people that have had mental health problems are kind of pushed over the edge. And so like, what, what do you, there's no uniform, you know, it's taking a uniform approach, but like we've said, if there's step care and there's different requirements and different needs, you can't meet that, which also going back to need, one of the criticisms is even though the goal is to reach these areas or populations that don't have access to traditional therapy or mental health resources, it's still not actually addressing that effectively because there's still costs involved. And at the end of the day, they can have this great mission. But as we said, the goal is profit. So again, it's like if the same people there are different people that have different beliefs than I do. Yeah. I don't think that it is evil to be a for-profit company. And I think that there are for-profit companies that solve problems that non-for-profit or governments cannot solve. Yeah. So like I will give the example in my own life of I love wine for anyone that's listening to this podcast. I love, <laughs> I love wine. I love if I go to a happy hour or if I, um, I don't know, I'm just at a restaurant and I order, I like wine from Argentina. I live in Miami. So there are a lot of restaurants in Miami that sell wine, like Argentine wine. And I find it to be very high quality and sometimes reasonably priced. And I love it. I have a problem though, which is that if I drink wine, I have to get home from that restaurant or from that happy hour. There has been no government intervention in my life that has made that in the city of Miami. There are other cities that have great public transportation. Miami is not one of them uh, that have made that possible for me other than Uber. I can push a button on my phone yep. and I can get from that happy hour or that restaurant back to my house without driving. Um, and I've had my credit card information stolen from taxis in Miami on like two or three different occasions. So I had a big problem and this technology company solved that for me. I am happy every single time that I'm drinking wine at a restaurant to pay the Uber home. So yeah. and I don't mind that Uber profits. I, do, I don't sure. think that, that is evil. So I think some people may listen to this and they may have more. I'm. I, without getting into the politics, like, but that's my, those are my views. So I, I think some people would listen to us and be like, oh, these girls, 
they're against um, business or I, I'm not at all. I'm, I'm very open to that. You work at a private practice, which is technically for profit. Like the goal is to make and money. This, and this, the, and the yeah. private practice where I work, which is a business is, is one of the only places, if not the only place that I've ever worked where everything there functions. All of the people there are happy and healthy. The staff speak Spanish. Um, like there's like a, you know, a person that can answer the phone in Spanish. There's very important to me. Um, yeah. you know, it's, uh, the, the computer systems, if there's a problem with the computer systems, oh, we just upgraded to a computer system that's working properly so that you it's can. not frozen. And you need the you good can. computer systems in order to do therapy now. And you can afford that because you're for profit, whereas some government agencies cannot afford that readily. Yeah, no, there were all kinds of things. I mean, I have, you know, an office where it's a, a good space to, to work with people. I've worked in settings where things, it, it was not a, an environment that is lends itself naturally to uh, being therapeutic mm-hmm. <laughs> in certain office locations that I've had. Sure. So, I mean, and, and it doesn't have to be luxury or fancy or whatever, but I mean, just, I'm talking about working, it's working and the people there are nice and happy and healthy and they're not burned out or, you know, treating each other negatively. So I mean, put a price on that. I don't, I don't know what the price should be, but to me, it's like, okay, I'm happy for this opportunity that I have. You have better quality of life probably. So yeah. Better better quality of life in that it's flexible. So I can spend more time with my family, which is really important to me. But, but, and even if I were working the exact same number of hours and it was, everything was held exactly the same for me to go to a working environment where I feel that it is a healthy environment and people treat each other with kindness and um, it's really healthy and, and, and it's functional, like the systems that they have, that is worth so much to me after having participated as we've discussed today in many systems that were very flawed. And I am supporting this because I worked <laughs> mostly in systems where- That are very flawed. Yeah. And very under-resourced. And so the burnout, I mean, it just like, it's contagious, the system, like it's awful. And so there are of course benefits to essentially these for-profit businesses. Right. And well, and it's also like, I don't want the government to pick me up from that happy hour and drive me home if I've had a glass of wine. Oh yeah. No, that would probably. So, I mean, I think, I think there are times where the government can do great things and can solve problems for people. But kind of previously, the problem that I would have is, I mean, in certain cities, you could take a taxi or you could take public transportation, but it was like, okay, so I I go to a restaurant and I have to swipe my credit card and maybe the taxi driver is going to steal my credit card information. Yeah. So it's like, I feel that businesses can solve problems for people and it doesn't always have to be the government that solves the problem. I'm not even saying that, but, but I... Yeah. I don't know. I I think people get really caught up on that. They'll be like, oh, well, because it's for profit, it has to be bad. I don't think so. Very binary thing. And people, I think it can be for profit with appropriate regulations Mm -hmm. and with appropriate oversight uh, with a positive mission. Yeah. I think the issue is probably twofold. I'm sure it's more complicated than that. But in my head, the first two things that came up were kind of the same issue with insurance companies. The people making the calls in these, you know, investment opportunities or these companies are not in our field. And when there is a conflict between ethics 
and profit or money, not even necessarily profit, like maybe even meeting the bare minimum, any kind of money coming in, which one are you going to choose? Because based on our training, we should be choosing ethics above all else, above all else. And I think there are some relatively simple solutions to this. Yeah. So for example, in the private practice where I work, it is owned by a psychiatrist. And he is a licensed doctor and healthcare provider. There so you go. all of it, it's co there's co-owners. It's him and his wife that are amazing people. So having a healthcare professional in a decision-making capacity prevents a lot of any this thing because he's such an ethical person. So then a lot of these concerns just don't happen because he would choose ethics every time. Yeah. So it's it, as long as you can put the right people in the decision-making roles, uh, you're going to be okay. Obviously, as you can imagine, I have some deep, deep concerns about who's making decisions because yeah. like, I Google them. I go on to Crunchbase. I look at who's giving the money uh, for people that are listening. Crunchbase is where you can see which companies and which startups have funding from which investors. So I'll look up and see who's there. I'll look up all the different people that are the C-level executives in some of these companies. I'll go deep into it. And it's a lot of people that have a background in uh, startups, in technology, in business, you know, like people that have an MBA. There's a lot of people that have great expertise and great knowledge. I don't see a lot of healthcare professionals running this charge. I, d- I just don't see that. Maybe it's because we can't afford to do any of that. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, well, yeah, no. Oh, I mean, no, no, no. We can't afford, I mean, the companies, no, 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 no. We don't have any capital to venture. That's for sure. There's no capital venturing from any healthcare. But I I just mean like, maybe we could be co-founders of these companies or we could be hired as a, a higher up within these companies, or we could be consultants or yeah. Like you said, we could be on the advisory board of these companies, or we could be employed within, you know, the venture capital, the investor in their organizations in making decisions about which companies to invest in, or that we could be involved in any way in that realm. To my knowledge, none of these people or very, very few of these people, I won't say none. There are a handful of companies that I think are really trying to be different. And I I really admire them, uh, but a lot of them are not, they are just not interested. They don't care. I would say part of it, part of it is I see them as some of these people as ethical in that they could have um, selected to make companies that are about French fries and video games. Sure. And they have created these technology companies that are focused on improving health and mental health. And I think that there's something noble in that, in that they could probably make more money um, being the people that sell hot dogs at the baseball game. Because I feel like people that do concessions at professional sports, like if they were going to try to make money in something, I feel like that's such a great industry. You could go for something where you're going to expect bigger profits. So there's, I think there's an element of caring in this field. I don't think it's everyone. It's not everyone, but you know, the nuance, I mean, our field is all about nuance and it's really hard to capture that in this really accurate way without oversimplifying. And there's a lot of nuance to our ethics. Sometimes most of the time there isn't necessarily a clear cut answer unless it's don't sleep with your clients. That's pretty clear cut. 
Um, <laughs> the number of times that that question was on the, oh, uh, the licensing board examination, I was just like, if there's anyone that's getting these questions wrong, like, oh my God, like, this is so bad. Like, well, the rate of people still doing it's really problematic, but yeah. But even like when I worked in a a children's hospital, right. So I worked alongside a lot of physicians, Mm -hmm. our ethics were still a lot stricter than them. So like, for example, they could, it wasn't a big deal if they became friends with former patients on social media, whereas we shouldn't be doing that at all ever. Um, and so it's, I mean, obviously it gets tricky whenever we have these public Instagram profiles and stuff like that. And if they follow us, but I'm talking about like on Facebook, like you friend each other or whatever, like it's a personal profile that apparently is okay for some, we should not be doing that at all. So, um, I I thought it was very interesting. I thought, I thought a lot about the ethics more when I was in Mississippi and there were supervisors that I had in Jackson, it was a big city, but there were supervisors that I had where they were the only psychologists that worked in their entire County. And so it was like, basically like they had to deal with ethics all the time because they had a mechanic, they went to a market, they had a, yeah. a baker, they had a, their child's teacher, they had all these people in their community. If they went to a party or a barbecue on Saturday afternoon, they were in their community with a very small group of people. So unless if you alienate everyone and you're not friends with anyone at all, and you basically treat your life like you're a CIA agent and you just go to work and then you don't talk to anybody, then you can't have have a, like uh, a social presence at all in in for those psychologists in that area. So I learned. I feel that I learned a lot um, just hearing what some other supervisors would say to balance ethics in um, in that case where there were a lot of challenges that they had. You know what what do you do if there's one mechanic and there's one psychologist and the mechanic has a kid who very likely has autism. Like, okay, so sometimes, yes, they just have to get in the car and drive because it's an ethical conflict or, but sometimes there's a way to maintain both relationships separately. It's not, anyway, it's it's super, like you were saying, it's super, super complicated. And I think now these professional accounts that we have have really complicated it. I never before... Less than a year, I've been doing this online stuff, and I think that it, it 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 complicates it. I used to never participate in any of this because of how strict our ethics are. Um, but it, well, and I just didn't want to have to think about it because it was kind of hard. Yeah. And uh, now it's different. But yes, I agree. There are different ethics for social work versus psychology versus medicine versus you know uh, physician assistant or nurses. It's it's not easy. Um, you know, and, and these platforms, they wouldn't have any clue. Exactly. A licensed psychologist and a, a licensed uh, clinical social worker might have slightly different um, duties and that they, the duties vary slightly ethically by state because there are additional laws and regulations in Florida versus in Texas or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example of that complexity, like that nuance is when you're potentially going to have multiple relationships with this client, like, Oh, that gets really sticky. And so the people calling the shots in these companies, like you said, we don't have really a lot of representation. And so are they even aware? Because the, I, I think our tendency is to like very much oversimplify things, but the amazing and really frustrating, frustrating thing about this field is that so much of it isn't. And one of the complaints that I saw 
about, it was a quote, essentially critiquing the involvement of venture capital at all in the field is number one, that it could put private practices out of business for the things that you mentioned earlier about kind of taking over that area. I'll add to it. I think it would be certain private practices that it would put out of business, but I think that there are certain private practices where um, they are catering to different clientele than oh, yeah. you ever consider. So I, I, I yeah. say that in a way of like, um, am I personally worried that better help or talk space would uh, prevent all of it and get a hundred percent. No, not a hundred percent, but, but a lot, actually, I think it's the clinicians that are most vulnerable that are the most at risk. True. Yeah. And the other critique that I saw was, and maybe it's partly the reason that uh, clinicians may not feel threatened is that therapy is not a transaction it's not a transactional relationship. And so that's kind of been the critique. And I don't, like you've mentioned a broad spectrum of different services that are coming from, you know, investors or being backed by investors. I think this one was specifically targeted to talk space and calm and better help. And that uh, actually more for better help and talk space, I think. So that was like targeted to them of essentially saying we can't treat therapy as this transactional relationship because it's a lot more complex than that. So I don't know your thoughts on that piece. I mean, I think I'm probably less political. Like I, I I get more into the nuances of therapy and all that. I think politically, some of the people that are um, really, I, I less political is the wrong word. I think there are certain political divides online where people will be like, if this happens, if I say this, I will not waver at all on this one political standpoint. I'm more of a pragmatist than a purist in terms of my political beliefs. And I think that that question ultimately is, is a philosophical or a political one. And I'm, but rather than get into what I actually think on that question, which definitely no one cares about, I would say to the point of money and ethics, going back to sort of that original question of why do the venture capitalists think that this is going to be a grand slam? Why do they think that this is going to be a huge investment win if the therapist, even take the venture capital out of the equation. There's not, a, there's a lot of patients that need help. There's a lot of therapists. It's expensive to, to afford the therapist's labor. The patients uh, as a whole, some yes, but as a whole don't have tons of money. So it's like, I don't understand where do they think that they're magically going to get a ton of money from? Like, you know what I mean? Like, is it that yeah. they're going to basically charge a processing fee for every time that they link a client with a therapist? And what would be the margins on that processing fee? And what value does it deliver either to the therapist or to the client? If, for example, with Uber, they deliver me a driver at the exact location that I need when it's raining to get home from my happy hour after a glass of Malbec. Then that is really solving me a problem because if I call a taxi, they could steal my credit card information. They could um, show up really late. This network effect of the app and and the company really solves a problem for me. If you're a therapist and you know anything about marketing, you can get your own leads. Yeah. So why would you pay BetterHelp? Basically, that's to me what they are doing. They are generating leads. They don't. There's nothing cool or interesting about what they're providing um, 
you know, to my knowledge at this moment, I don't know. Sorry, guys, if you're doing something revolutionary that I'm unaware of, um, if they're listening. Um, but yeah, you laugh, but I'm like, I think, I think that people, I think someone's going to forward this to someone. I think, I think there'll be people that want to know what therapists think. And I think someone of these companies will eventually hear our conversation. I hope so. I'm, I, oh, I know a lot of therapists, uh, will do, they'll get like a sponsorship from BetterHelp or Talkspace. I've accepted that after this conversation it's out and I hope they still hear it because we have a lot of concerns here that need to be addressed. I'm never going to do affiliate marketing for any of these companies, um, for not just because of this conversation. Um, I, I, no, no, actually it's interesting. I've, I've I've learned a lot about sales and I think that if I would totally do affiliate marketing for, um, well, I'm not going to name the brand, but for my favorite sunscreen, I oh, use yeah. sunscreen yeah. all the time. And if that company wanted to give me a discount code and for me to pass that discount along to people I know, um, I think getting a, a tried and true product that is sunscreen is good for you. I would happily do affiliate marketing for that. Um, the reason that I wouldn't necessarily do I don't think that affiliate marketing would be the right fit for me other than just that these companies might listen to our conversation and think, I don't like those gals. Um, uh, because I think that I offer unbelievable value to whoever is listening to me right now in that I am fluent in Sand Hill road. I can, I understand about the venture space and I've followed you know, the incubators, the accelerator programs, like across a number of different verticals, not just healthcare, but also ed tech. And I've followed this for years. I, um, I have publication with that uses machine learning. I presented at machine learning for healthcare, which is not just mental health focus, but healthcare focus, but I've been interested in automation. I, uh, I review for that conference. Uh, I offer huge ideas. And so I don't think that an affiliate partnership really captures the value that I bring. And I wouldn't sell my word or my advice or my whatever for that price, because I think that I could help these people. (laughs) That's, that's really what it is. And either they would have to pay me for my time, um, which would probably be very expensive for them. Or maybe one day I think I could see myself in a role where I have equity, where our interests are truly aligned and I'm helping these companies because I have equity and I'm in the game with them and I'm advising them. I think there, I have huge value. And I don't think that, you know, a 15% off code from me, if not, if they're listening, probably laughing to this being like, this girl is delusional, but I, I don't think I'm delusional at all. I think these people need help. That's why we're doing this podcast, not because we're against them or we hate them or we're whatever, but because we think that they need help. And I actually think I'm the one that could help them. So that's just me. Okay. Well, I would like to say that I actually am against a lot of that, (laughs) but I love that you're gonna, you add value and that you can, because if, if there is room for help, then I'm all for it. Um, I I think I'm against certain things that they do. But I don't think that I am against people that are trying to improve mental health. And I think that not every single person in these organizations, but I think many people that are in this space chose to do a mental health company rather than a French fries company because they think that mental health is important. Yeah. I I mean, I really, I think if they're listening, 
they would be like, Annie's right that we care about people. And I'll be, and McKenna would be like, huh, well, you don't care that much because you're, you know, messing around and I'm against you. But I, I, I believe, I don't know. I mean, no, there's definitely some people out there where I'm like, oh, these are just, you know. Yeah. But I mean, it's a good point because like you said, how are they going to make money? So there has to be some like altruistic piece in there of like wanting to help because yeah, why not make money with something easier? I think mean, yeah. like I, I always go back to concessions at professional sports games, but okay. What a brilliant model that is. You go, you I'm go so buy happy. beer at the cheapest price ever. You bring it to the arena or the, you know, the stadium, and then you sell it at a markup. Beautiful model. I love that. If I, if I were an investor, I would rather invest on that than mental yeah, it's health. A lot e- it's a lot easier than solving this problem, especially because there's still not necessarily a lot of them some of them are effectively solving whatever their niche is but overall it's like you said they're at a loss (laughs) a lot of them are at a loss and then oh yeah are they really closing the gap that much and in a way that maybe they no no not right now no not they they're all operating at a loss but i think that hope of that sort of short-term pain long-term gain get a bigger share of the market yeah, but, I think there's a lot of work to do though to still address to to access to provide access to these groups that don't typically have access to therapy. I don't know if that's necessarily been addressed super um comprehensively. Yeah, not in my opinion, it has not been addressed well. But I mean, I don't know. I I, I try to be optimistic, optimistic. I sometimes I waver in my ability to 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 find that where, you know, things are getting better. Things are better now than they were in 1970. They, you know, in 1970, they were better than they were in 1930. Like I, I try to step back from the equation and, and, and try to see some of the things that have gotten better, you know, but I mean, I think that's why we make a really good partnership because I'm very pessimistic. (laughs) (laughs) I can be really negative. I know that we're, I know that this is recording, so I'm on my best behavior, but, uh, I, I can be super negative too. And I, I think that I cope very much so with a dark sense of humor, Yeah, which is why I think that it's as bad as the internet and all that I was kind of getting down on the internet and how it will, the wrong clips will go viral or whatever. I think it is really cool in that I felt like I knew you, like I would see your, your yeah. videos or listen to your show with Christina. And I felt like I knew you. And I think that as people listen to us on this show, that they, that they, maybe they feel that way too. Like it is a really cool thing of the internet of, of that you get to know someone in a way that you wouldn't otherwise from like a, a, just a website where you click and, you know, see writing or something. No, I agree. And it, I mean, I think it gives you more credibility. You're more human. That's kind of a, a line that we straddle in the field too, is like how human do we appear versus like that professionalism mm-hmm. piece and kind of how, you know, how much do we hide. Um, and I guess that maybe that line is also blurred depending on the, uh, venture capital piece. Again, it's like this gray area, this like nuance that isn't necessarily in black and white laid out, like on our ethical code, but we still have to think about, you know, really think about these things ethically speaking. Yeah, no, that, that one, I think, I think the influencer marketing element of the venture capital space kind of gets at that, what you were saying of like, how much do people put out there? If I um, did every single one of my videos in a bathing suit, I would get more views. And um, 
so then if you get more views then and you're doing affiliate marketing or, or paid ads as an influencer and ambassador, then you would get that. So, I mean, it, that to me is like an interesting thing of that the internet incentivizes um, certain behaviors to, to yeah. get more eyeballs on, on the, the, you know, image or video. So I, yeah, I think the venture capital companies are spending a ton of money on uh, influencer marketing and they're doing a lot of paid ads. And I think that that is one of the things that's gotten me really angry about this is that like, I would love to just put up a number, a little dashboard therapist, student debt, like a little ticker that has all of the debt, all of the loans and then better help ad spend or talk space ad spend. And just look, they're spending all this money. They're burning through money. And I don't see them as helping therapists or clients in any way other than that they connect the two. That's it. Uber connects me to my driver. These companies, they connect therapists and clients. They generate leads. Yeah. So they're spending all this money on ads. And I'm like, why don't we just stop doing all that and just take all of your money and give it to the loans? (laughs) And they would be like, because the investors gave it to us to make money, not to do that. I know. I, so just so people can understand, um, we were talking about loans and how we really don't make that much. So like on paper, it probably looks like we make a decent amount. I am going to disclose how much my loans are without any help at all, which thank God for COVID they've been <laughs> deferred. Um, so everyone take a really deep breath. Um, cause I had a panic attack multiple. Let me get, my, let me get my dog out. Okay. So you can cope after and see the cute, the cuteness. I'm listening. So it's about $1,900 a month without any help. And consider that would be maybe more okay if you're a physician, um, because you tend to make more money, but the ratio is so bad compared to the income. So like if I didn't get any income-based help or anything like that, or any loan forgiveness or whatever, I mean, that would be, that's just not doable. So yeah, I mean, that's like a real life example of like, that's an insane amount of money for loans. Um, And so we have to like eat (laughs) and things. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think it's great that you talk about that. Um, I mean, you know, there, there's such a range. I have friends that are physician's assistants. I have a friend that went to a PsyD program. Um, PsyDs are more expensive too. They are, they are. Um, and so for the people that are listening to this conversation, there's a range. And I think, um, you know, just, just keeping that in mind of that. And also, you know, even if you take that out of the equation, I I, I just think that like, I, I, there's just something to me that's missing in this puzzle. I'm like, I just get, I, I keep coming back to that. Like, okay. Yeah. I was kind of saying like, wow, it makes it worse that these companies are spending all this money on ads when the people that they employ are suffering. And it's not clear to me how they, and help they help them. Uh, but I don't know. I just, cause I, it's like from the very first beginning of the episode, I don't get it. I am confused, guys. I'm confused. And there's, I think there are some companies out there that are going to do good. I mean, I, I've yeah. named a couple ones that I have no affiliation with, but that I, I admire. 
I think listen is uh, trying to help people. Yeah. I, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a perpetual issue for a long time. And so it's going to take something really drastic or take a long time to fix. And so mm. the jury's still out as to whether, you know, long-term what benefits these are going to have. And if the benefits outweigh some of the concerns, um, yeah. that we have here. So, yeah, I think it's like a Rubik's cube, you know, all these yeah. different sides that we're trying to look at and we're trying to be fair. I really appreciate that. Even though there were times that I was like, mm, trying to pull you into my side, you, you know, you remain level-headed on like, no, there are, these I, I feel a lot of your side. I feel your side very strongly in a very Marsha Linehan esque way. I feel your side very strongly. And I accept the dialectic of the other positive things that I said. And because you shared your side, I didn't say your, I didn't repeat what you said, but I agree with everything you said. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And yeah, it's, it's a dialect, right? These two opposing things can be true at the same time. And as human beings, we tend to, we tend to forget that all, even therapists guys, we all forget that. Okay. Yeah. I circle (laughs) back. I try to remind myself. I think we talked about, I feel like we talked about so much. Oh, you know, we didn't get to do the dramatic read of the email that I sent to the BetterHelp recruiter. Oh my God, please. But I will spare the I'll spare the listeners. We'll have to leave something to the imagination. Just after our conversation, if you're a listener and you're still even on this point, just imagine that the the recruiters email us. Like I don't know if you get a lot of the emails too, McKenna. They email us, and I sometimes respond, and my responses. have a a humorous element. Uh, it is, I'll leave it there, but yeah, I didn't, I I left, we left something to the imagination, even though I rambled for a very long time today. No, you're good. (laughs) That was such a nice way, uh, and polite way of saying, I maybe troll the fuck out of them. So I appreciate that. I'm, I'm dying. Yeah. I, um, yeah, my, one of my emails was a, it was the most, um, thoughtful, um, you know, heartfelt troll that there ever has been. But yeah, I sent them a message as though they would read it. And they definitely opened it and deleted it immediately. They're like, okay, she's not going to work for us. Bye. Like, no, thanks. I don't want any critical feedback from you, ma'am. I keep fighting the good fight, I think. And as we're closing up, if you want to just repeat your Instagram handle so people can follow you for the information and the funny videos, I think people need to see that. To, uh, yeah, to follow me for for either thing or just to send me In a nice Frenchie. message. Yeah. Oh, I occasionally post pictures of my beautiful dog, and it's at I'm at pretty much everywhere you can find me at at Queen Behavior Change. So Queen like royalty and behavior change like turning over a new leaf. Wow, that was such a nice way to word that. I hope you make that a tagline somehow. <laughs> I just do it because like, if you don't say that, they'll be like, oh, did you say clean, like a clean behavior change or like cleanliness? And I'm like, no queen, like royalty. As in I'm above all of you peasants. As in Anne Morrow is a common name. So I couldn't use that one. (laughs) That's fair. Well, thank you. And all the other domain, all the other domain names are expensive or taken. (laughs) That's also a tough part or you could spell it a different way. So yeah, it's, it's, all the letters are in there, guys. Yeah. <laughs> All the, the letters cheapest are way. There. Yeah. When I can afford a cheaper way to do it, a, a simpler way, I'll do that. But whatever. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on here. And thank you so much for having me. I really love talking about this stuff. So what did you guys think about this episode? It is definitely a more current topic and really a new area to kind of be discovered and talk about and these unique hurdles that we may run into related to essentially the tech industry or really any venture capital firms kind of partnering with the mental health field in an attempt to reach more people and some of those inevitable issues that may come up with that. I also wanted to add that since the recording of this episode, I tried again, as I talked about in the episode, to log on to the BetterHelp website and essentially pretend that I was actively suicidal to see how the site would respond to this using some kind of coding or whatever they use to try to figure out how they would respond to someone who is actively suicidal. So I went through a series of questions that basically talked about being depressed, um, which, by the way, you can be suicidal without feeling depressed. So I feel like that's an important thing to keep in mind moving forward. Also, whenever I answered some of the questions, they weren't nearly as specific as they could have been. So there was definitely questions revolving around, am I having thoughts of wanting to kill myself? Do I have a plan right now? So the response was better than the last time that I checked a few years ago, like I mentioned in the episode, in the sense that a new tab popped open, essentially, showing me that Basically, I'm in crisis and that BetterHelp is actually not appropriate for people in crisis, which we agree with. So, okay, kudos. And they actually offer a text line for people that are in crisis. They also offer, because I think I mentioned that I was low income or something like that, um, to find someone through some kind of search engine to find low cost therapists in the area. So on the one hand... This is a much better response than it used to be. On the other hand, there's a lot more kind of assessing that needs to happen. And it's more kind of a reactive approach instead of a proactive approach and still leaves kind of a lot to the person. And it seems like they just kind of throw their hands up and saying, well, we can't really do a whole lot here. I mean, here are some other things, but there also may not be low income therapists in the area. So that's also continuing to be a problem. So basically some progress, actually probably quite a bit of progress, but also still room for improvement there. And so this is just one example of, you know, some of the intricate issues that pop up here. Like I've said time and time again, the amazing and simultaneously frustrating thing about psychology and mental health is that it's really complicated. There are not necessarily these really quick and easy answers for a lot of issues, um, which, again, keeps us hooked, but also makes things really difficult, particularly when we're trying to increase access to care. Also, considering this season in general, I hope you guys leave some feedback for me. Um, Also, shoot me a message on what topics you would like to hear during the upcoming season. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoy kind of taking this break and also maybe listening again to some of the episodes that we've taken. Lastly, I want to own that, of course, I had a bit of a bias, if you couldn't tell in this episode. I think it's important that I disclose that because 
a lot of times we're not aware of that, particularly when we're hosting really like any show, a podcast, news show, whatever the case is. It's important to own that we have biases. And I did not do as great of a job in this episode keeping mine in check. Thankfully, Dr. Annie did a great job managing that on her own and really providing like a really balanced view of the complexities and nuance related to this issue. But I wanted to give this example and publish this episode anyway, despite me thinking, okay, I probably should have approached this a little differently because it's important that we own that because none of us are, none of us are immune to biases, even when we've gone to school for a bazillion years to address said biases. So I appreciate you guys hanging in there. And I will see all of you for season three before you know it.